Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, my monthly interview series where I have the privilege of sitting down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the video game industry. Today, my guest is Matt Firor. He is the studio head at ZeniMax Online Studios, makers of Elder Scrolls Online, which is uh, coming up. I think it's just past another big anniversary, and the game is coming officially to the next generation consoles, the Xbox Series X, Series S, and PlayStation 5 coming up very short, uh, shortly as well. Matt, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Lots going on, apparently. <laughs> yeah, you're a busy guy. I mean, and you I guess that's the thing. You you don't ship a game in your world. The, the work's just getting started. The, the, the You've spent more time probably working on the game, exponentially more time working <laughs> on it since it came out than before, right? Uh, yeah, it's actually very true. In fact, we had a studio meet and greet with the studio heads of uh, the different Xbox studios as we as we come into the organization. And my so we each got one slide to introduce ourselves in our studio. Uh, and my slide said, uh, we were founded in 2007 and, and have only shipped one title. <laughs> and that's, and that's exactly the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Elder Scrolls Online doing quite well with that with that one title. And we're going to talk about Microsoft too. We'll get to that in, later in the conversation. But with you, I, I was—I uh, had a really interesting time researching you, and uh, I've came to found out, find out you are just a, an RPG dyed in the wool RPG guy, and, and I'm fascinated by that. So you go back to Muds, which for my—I'm 40. For my young, younger viewers out there, younger listeners, Muds are uh, multi-user dungeons, which go—that's—it's it's like the the forefathers, the grandfather of the MMORPG. I mean, you've, Matt, you've been doing online RPGs your whole life, basically, at this point. So I'm just curious, what are some of your favorites over the years, some of your favorite online role-playing games besides the ones you've worked on? And really, what, what is it about this genre, again, going back to those muds, that's kept you interested for 30-plus years now? Yeah, it, it, it's actually funny. Uh, we didn't actually know what muds were. It was so long ago. Um, but we were playing one, me and me and some friends were playing one professionally called Scepter of Goth. And it was a real professional company and uh, they charged you by the minute, no, by the hour uh, to play. I think it was like $3 an hour or something like that. It was crazy. Um, and uh, we decided to license one mostly so we could play for free, um, but, but to try to make some money too. And the, the company that did Scepter of Goth went out of business and we're like, how hard can this be? We'll just write it ourselves. Um, not knowing that it was actually based on a code base that had been around for four or five years at that point. And so uh, we, we just wrote our own. We didn't know that it was already there. We didn't, there was no Google then. We didn't know yeah. MUDs existed. So we just made our own, which came out in like 1990. Um, and that was the genesis of, of mythic entertainment. But um, that, that era was full of those crazy cool games because every game that came out in that era was groundbreaking because it was all new like Darklands from from Sid Meier and Pirates and um the Ultima series which I could go on go on for a long long time about but uh leading up to like Wing Commander and then uh 
And then of course the, the id games with Wolfenstein and tomb like that stretch of four or five years there was super, super transformational. Oh, it was just, yeah, like all these seeds that had been planted just started, started sprouting up in the industry. I mean, I had, I had Richard Garriott on here a couple of years ago and, that's a guy that's full of stories. I mean, I'm sure you, you probably know him at this point, having sort yeah. of inherited the, the Ultima mantle. And that guy's been to space. Yeah. Yeah, he has. And, uh, you know, he's he's actually, uh, at least when I when I first was, you know, hit it big at Mythic Entertainment, um, he would talk to me at shows about, like, you know, um, here's what happened to me when I was in this situation. And you probably want to start thinking about this for your game and this for your next game. And it was actually very rare to find someone in the game industry that would mentor you that way and just give you advice and, you know, just actually try to help because there weren't that many people doing what we were doing back then at all. And he had hit, just hit it huge. Of course he was, he was famous, you know, in the eighties for, you know, 84, 85 with, with the Ultima series and then Ultima Online had come out by then. And then, so yeah, he, he's a, he's a really good guy. So kind of backing up a little bit, you know, you, you stumble into, working on your own game without realizing what's involved in it <laughs> obviously it worked out you're still yeah. here but i mean did you did you always have an inkling to be a video game designer like what what were your career goals back when you were you know in high school or 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 what have you like and and i'm also curious if when you do stumble into this or or not uh were your parents supportive because you know back then video games were still like oh you know just child's play yeah, it, it's funny. So I always approached video games with the with looking back on it the same way I do now, which is it's about for me, it's about creating worlds, like creating like a and d campaign. That's where it started. And then um, I was a history major in college. And so I had this, you know, vast encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, facts that most people don't find uh, super interesting, but I do. Um, but that first game that we wrote uh, together, my friends and I, um, I based on the Mesopotamian cultures because I just really loved that part of history. And I wrote a fantasy. I created a fantasy world based around that concept of like the, the Babylonian Empire and the Akkadian Empire and, and that kind of thing. And it was really cool. And that just, that's the way I approach it. It's not necessarily the role playing part of it. It's the setup part of it, which I've always loved. And I've loved like... Even, I mean, games that I don't work on that have resonated well with me, like Fallout or like uh, Baldur's Gate, like worlds that are just super cohesive and come together and are and are awesomely thought through. I just love. Well, I mean, I got to ask, because obviously you're working on Elder Scrolls online for the last yeah. seven years. Were you an Elder Scrolls guy in the early days? Oh, uh, yeah. It's funny. I, I played Arena and Daggerfall. Um, but when I, Morrowind came out right at the height of Dark Age of Camelot and I was working around the clock on that. Um, and I had played Oblivion and I loved it, but not in depth as much in depth as I should have. But so my Elder Scrolls thing was Daggerfall, which I, which I loved. I don't know if you're, you played it, but that game is huge. Like it's, it's the, probably the largest landmass Elder Scrolls game, even compared to ESO at this point. Um, but I, I loved that game. I, I really did. And of course, now I, I played Oblivion hundreds and hundreds of hours at this point, more one too. So uh, I, lo I love the world and the, you know, the way it comes together as well. So have you been gaming since you were a kid? Well, I, I think I'm technically not too old to be a video gamer, but uh, 
Um, I think my first game that I played that I loved was Pong, and that was probably in early 70s, whenever it came out, 74 or something like that. Um, and then arcade games took over for me for, for years and years and years. Um, you know, literally as just think back to the history of games, Pac-Man, Galaga, Defender, like we had a video arcade in town that, that, that I, that I spent a lot of quarters on. And then I got a, 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 a TRS-80, um, trash 80, if you will. Um, although I decided the color version, so I had the color computer called the Coco, but, uh, um, which was interesting because it was a similar architecture to the one used for the early Macintoshes. So I had a leg up when it came to programming, but it's a whole nother story. Uh, but I had, I had a TRS-80 and then I moved to the Apple II and I wrote games just for fun for, for, for all of those. So, but early gaming for me was all about arcades. Boy, I like, so I'm, you know, a little younger than you, but I, I feel so lucky to have grown up kind of in the tail end of when arcades were big and relevant there in like the late 80s and into the yeah. early 90s. And it, it really was just a like, it's great that we have these incredibly powerful home consoles, but there was something special about those arcade days, wasn't there? It's the social. Like it was so, so much fun just to go there. You met new people. You went there with your friends. Uh, there was competition. Some of the games were PvP by in, 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 in the later times. So you could actually fight against each other. Um, there was gauntlet in the, in the later days where you could actually co-op game together. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of the paradigms that we take for granted now kind of got their start there, like, um, how people play together, how they fight, um, and, and, and so forth and monetization, right. Obviously you got to put a quarter in, we all knew the games that, you know, uh, you could, uh, like we're playing gauntlet tonight. I'm going to need you know, $18 in quarters or <laughs> you literally knew how much you would need based on how much you had, you had played before. So yeah, those are all good. Uh, those are great memories. The original microtransaction, the quarter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you kind of touched on this. You co-founded mythic, which, uh, if you read Jason Schreier's new book, press reset, which I know when this publishes, this will be out. I imagine you haven't read it because it's not out as we're recording this, but, uh, th there was quite an ending to Mythic's uh, entire story as a studio, and obviously you were you co-founded the studio. You were there in the beginning through its heyday. Um, I I'm sort of curious from your take. What you know, you weren't there at the end, but were you were you still in touch with with anybody and with friends at at Mythic as the as the, yeah. the studio? Oh yeah, the uh, yeah. When uh, so I left Mythic in two thousand six. Um, as Warhammer was spinning up and Dark Age Camelot was kind of starting to tail off a little bit. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, Rob Denton, who was the head of, of, uh, of EA Mythic for, for a long time, is, is my, he was one of the guys I founded the company with in 1990, so he's, he's one of my best friends. So, yeah, we, at that point, by the end of Mythic, though, he had moved on and become the COO of BioWare, um, so he, he wasn't necessarily involved in day to day and I'm good friends with Eugene Evans, who was the last GM. So, um, so yes, I know many, many people that were there in the final days. I mean, is it, was it kind of bittersweet to watch, especially from afar, maybe to, to, to see something? That yeah. Kind of well, it was something that, you know, we spent a lot of time building, but, um, I, I will say there was a video that one of the, one of the employees made of just walking around this, this office on the last day. And it had changed 
a lot in the years since I had been there, but I, I still recognize like where my office was and stuff. And that was, it was very nostalgic just thinking back because we spent a lot of time in that office <laughs> over the years putting, putting games together. And it was a great, great group of people. And it was really a moment in the industry, you know, when online gaming was coming to the fore and we were kind of maybe looking back on it a little far ahead of the crest than we, than we, than we should have been, but we did great. And, uh, dark age of Camelot was a great game. Um, I think it's uh, one of those critics choices games where it did a lot better with, for the reviewers than I think it did in the market. But, uh, but it was uh, very influential on future online games. I'm, I'm super proud of working on it. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about next. I mean, dark age of Camelot was a very well-regarded game. I mean, what, what about it? Cause I want to ask you about kind of World of Warcraft next, and you just talked, you kind of just touched on the ahead of its time thing, but you know, what, what made for, for people that are, are watching now that, that weren't around, weren't playing games in the, in the, in the DAOC games, but yeah, years, I should say, what made that game special? And, and I'm also curious, at what point do you know that you've got something that is really good? Cause we've seen over the years, making an MMORPG is possibly one of the highest degree of difficulty tasks. In Not all for of art, I can tell you, um, you know, it's looking back on it. So Camelot did a couple of things really well. Um, one, it, it was not too big when it launched, you know, how, how some, sometimes in the early days, it was just so daunting to get into the game because they were so hardcore and we, we ratcheted down the hardcore. Uh, the systems were easy to understand for the time. Um, but where it really, really, killed it was the pvp system because not only because it was an amazing innovative pvp system but because it gave the game an identity that kind of set it separate from the other games at the time it wasn't just an also ran it was like oh that's the game with pvp and we didn't necessarily design it that way um but that's the way it worked out and i think that was the one that was the thing also the the other genius thing was to use um public domain myths like king arthur um celtic legends and um viking viking lore and uh that that was mark jacobs the president of of myth that came up with that idea because we we had designed kind of a generic world based on a text game we had done years before with generic chaos order and evil or something like that and he's like why don't we just use real myths i was like man that's a great idea so that's where that came from so believe it or not in america Camelot, everyone knows King Arthur, but in Europe, the King Arthur legends are everywhere. So Dark Age Camelot was super huge in Europe, especially in Germany and France. Like uh, uh, my wife still jokes about it that I'm like David Hasselhoff. I'm I'm really famous in Germany, and and I was like I like it was a big big game in in, in Europe back then. So uh, so I did a lot of time on talking on at trade at shows there and meeting developers and, and stuff. Some of which are my best friends even even to today. Well, you know, the, the Camelot was back in the days of uh, that was like when EverQuest was was arguably yeah. uh, the 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 big one in the room. You know, is 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 there any kind of rivalry there, either on your side, their side, both, or or is it just a <laughs> is it totally just mutual respect of hey, building these things yeah, is hard, yeah. so we love the what you're doing. I'm, I'm sort of small. curious what the dynamic was back then. Yeah, the, the group is so small, even including the World of Warcraft guys who who visited us many times at, at mythic when they were making world of warcraft um uh to talk about kind of how to, how to make games and stuff it was the industry was so small back then in fact in some ways it still is especially when you're working on a niche genre like that um but 
Yeah. I mean, uh, Brad McQuaid, who we sadly lost last year, it was the kind of godfather, founding father of, of EverQuest. Uh, uh, the first E3 where in 2001, when we were demoing Camelot for the first time to the world, he actually came over with John Smedley and uh, was watching one of the presentations. And I was like, so is there anything you guys want? I kind of sidled up to him. Hey, Brad, you know, please talk to me. And he's like, how did you guys do this? <laughs> and I was like, you're supposed to know that. And he's like, no, you did this so fast. How did it come together so quickly? It looks great. And so we, we stayed in touch after that for, for a long time. I talked to him even, I think, two, three years ago. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a small but very, very tight community. And lots of people go between studios and teams. And so uh, chances are if there's someone making an online RPG out there, I know, some, I know them or know someone that knows them. It's, uh, but I, well, you mentioned I'm really interested to hear the, about the Blizzard team members that came to visit you and, and talk about, like, that's not something I think the public ever, you know, gamers no, ever really happened, right? Like, you know, we kind of have that sports team mentality of like, well, you know, you can't just go fraternize with, with those guys. I mean, did you guys, were you worried about World of Warcraft? Because you knew it was coming. I mean, it's, it's Blizzard. They're making this thing. Yeah. Um, did you pay much attention to it when it did come out? I'm sort of curious of your your sort of personal and team relationship with with that yeah. game because it obviously became the juggernaut. Yeah, so um, I don't think it's any secret, although I don't think it's widely known that much of the World of Warcraft development team were hardcore Dark Age Camelot players. Like, we knew them as players before we knew them as competitors. Uh, to the point where uh, um, we would get members of their team calling us raging about a design decision that we made or something that we, that we did to make their a nerf that we did on the character uh, and so forth. So we had lots of back and forth with them. They came out and visited us a few times. There, there was some talks about mergers and buyouts back then because we were we were we were a private company. Uh, this is long before EA bought Mythic, and that, those never materialized. But I think that a lot some of those discussions were more based around they just wanting to know, you know, how the sausage was made than uh, than actually uh, talking business. Um, but yeah, they uh, they were really good at what they did because they. Um, I don't know if the too many people know how dedicated that original World of Warcraft team was to actually playing those kinds of games. Like they knew everything about every one of their competitors. Um, they took notes. They, they really did a good job of identifying what's the magic and concentrating on the magic and not worrying so much about the stupid hardcore stuff that had been on all the other MMOs that they jettisoned, which it turned out to be the genius decision that made wow. What it, what it is. Um, so we didn't take it too seriously, mostly because we didn't play it before it launched, obviously. Um, and we knew that they were working on it and we followed the press and uh, we watched their videos, which of course were unbelievable because they were you know, full CGI, especially back then. But then the, the first day beta launched, like, of course we all got in and like literally two hours later, we were just kind of ambling around going, oh shit. <laughs> Because it was it was good even then on the first day of the beta we were like man they they're they're nailing it and uh, and so I mean kudos to them it, it's a great game I mean it changed the world in many ways so uh, I certainly put enough hours in it so you're you kind of glossed over there, there was a chance that that you guys could have been Blizzard East at some point 
I don't know how serious that actually was, but Vivendi back then was our uh, was our distributor, yeah. um, and they were always interested in, well, I guess, publisher, and they were always interested in kind of making that relationship a little a little tighter because they were afraid we were going to go over to some other competitor. So there were there were talks uh, with with Blizzard at the time that were also um, business tied to Vivendi in in, in various ways. So um, I think it was more. I don't think it was actually let's sit down and talk numbers. It was more like let's just get together and see if these guys get to you know ha- have if they're too similar or they're too different and just see what happens. And so we had a lot of good dinners and a lot of good design talks, but I don't know how serious that actually was. Yeah, you guys, you you your team mythic kind of reminds me based on what the stories you're telling of uh, of Looking Glass, the, the like the the Looking Glass of the MMO space, where like a, a studio that you know, had its time and was su- successful and, and critically acclaimed, but never just influenced the hell out of everybody and maybe never really got the credit it deserved. Yeah, I don't, I think we got a lot of credit from developers, especially at the time. Like everyone we ran into at shows took us aside and said, hey, you know, th- this game changed my idea of what a game could be, especially socially. Um, so I, I don't. I don't think it was about that, but we were very insular. So we were in Fairfax, Virginia. There were no other game companies around us except for Bethesda. And they were tiny in that, in that period too. This is pre Morrowind. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of P there weren't, there wasn't a lot of turnover with people that had worked at other studios. Almost everyone at mythics, this was their first game ever or their first game job. And so we didn't know what we couldn't do. Nobody told us no. So we just did things and uh, and I think that made Dark Age of Camelot what it is, but then it led later to not running a really great large company because we just didn't have the experience. I mean, it was, you know, so if you look back on it, we did really well with what we had and we made and we made great games. Well, kind of on that note, segueing to the next chapter, I'm curious, how did you come to connect with Zenimax? You know, who who approaches who there? And and I'm also curious. Uh, well, actually, I'll start there, and then I have sort of a follow-up to that. So go ahead. Well, DC area, there were like two and a half game studios there, and one of them was Bethesda. So we we knew each other. We did have a couple of people, like um, the lead animator on Camelot was one of the animators on Morrowind. We had a couple artists that worked on on Morrowind, um, or or some other one of the other titles there. So we knew each other. I knew Todd Howard. Um, it was it was a small community, so it wasn't it wasn't hard to know. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't hard to run into them, especially because it was just such a small town. Um, what happened was EA bought Mythic. Um, I had been there for a long time. I had moved away because I had met my uh, now wife, um, and she lives in Baltimore. So it was a long commute, and so I just decided I had to buy out just to kind of put a pin in it there. Um, Warhammer was coming, coming on. And I mean, I love the guys there and I, I obviously love the guys at mythic, but I, I wasn't super interested in making a licensed product game because it, it was kind of restrictive. Um, although I, to be fair, I never worked on Warhammer. So I left before it got really off the ground. Um, so I left and essentially retired for a year. Um, and then uh, Bethesda was trying to get this, MM over Elder Scrolls game off the ground. And they had been talking to people around the industry. And uh, Todd Howard said, Why don't you just talk to Matt? He's right up the street. <laughs> so so they gave me a call and uh, 
it was the right thing to do. Um, it was definitely the right, uh, the right moment. It was the right time in the industry. And I think it was, it was, it was a, the right, uh, property to base a giant game on. Uh, another funny story that I don't know if I've ever told publicly is that, uh, in the year off, I I'm obsessed with fallout. Like even today, I, it is my favorite, uh, second favorite, I guess, Elder Scrolls, but I, I love fallout. I still play fallout one, probably every other year, at least once all the way through. Um, in the year in between, I actually tried to get the rights to fallout to make a fallout MMO. And, uh, and so I, I, I was talking to the license holders and they were like, great. I'd lined up a publisher, which was brash entertainment, which were around for a hot minute back then. And, uh, and then suddenly they stopped taking my calls. And then like three <laughs> weeks later it was like, Bethesda acquires fallout. Uh, and I was like, Oh man. So, uh, so they uh, beat me to it. So I just, of course it makes perfect sense that I, I go join them. So. Is, is that the real reason you joined? <laughs> 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 no, I, I knew it was Elder Scrolls when I took the job. That was, it was very clear. It was literally to make the Elder Scrolls MMO. And that was exactly my follow-up question. So that that was the pitch. It was not, hey, come start an MMO studio. It was, hey, come yeah. build the studio to make Elder yeah. Scrolls online. Yeah, I mean, I did make some feeble attempts to... Uh, to uh to change it to fallout but uh they were having none of it so uh it was and it was the right decision fantasy at the time as has been proven was the right the right way to go hey there this is justin bartha i made a funny new podcast king of the egg cream it has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like lewis black i'm torn by my feelings for two women bobby cannavale you can eat it or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, you did just say you didn't want to work on a license thing, and is, I mean, Elder Scrolls is, does have its own sort of bible as it were but clearly you don't find that as uh as as creatively stifling as as like a as an ip yeah yeah with an external ip holder it would be much internally it's it's been fine it's been a dream working with those guys at 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 bgs because they just want to make great games and we just want to make great games and uh the first two or three months i was at the company i literally sat with their team um and went over how the world was going to be set up and a lot of the core decisions were made there. So, um, and I literally did it with them. So before anyone else was hired at sauce. Well, on on that note, I'm sort of curious, like, do you, do you feel like Todd Howard is, is either figuratively or perhaps even literally looking over your shoulder as you're, (laughs) as you're sort of sketching out what ESO is going to be? Because, you know, that's, that's his baby. So he was very clear in the beginning um, that it was my game. Like, and he told all the people on his team, this is not our game. This is Matt's game. Uh, or in the, in the future, this is Oss's game, right? We're going to advise where necessary. We're going to talk about the IP, but it's their game to design and, and, and to, and to do. And he is, he held to that ever, 
ever since, which is gave us the freedom to do what we needed to do, um, but helped us because they were always there to answer questions, um, especially in the days after months after Skyrim launched, when it was pretty clear that that was one of the greatest games ever made. And it was going to really change the way people perceived Elder Scrolls Online. You know, they worked with us. You know, he came up and talked to the team. You know, he, we, he's, he really, really, really has helped us. And, and he has three or four key Elder Scrolls and Fallout lore people and designers, and they have really helped us over the years too. You know, I'm curious, you know, you've talked about how collaborative your time in the industry has been. You're having all these, you know, so-called competitors in the studio and you're friendly with everybody. But when you're sitting down to do Elder Scrolls Online, I mean, that that's a big job. I mean, there are expectations to that. That's It's something that Elder Scrolls fans had wanted for many years, and here you are finally being the person and the team tasked with doing it. Do you feel a pressure uh, to do right by Todd, right by the fans who who had wanted that for so long, or or is it just like total, just creatively, uh, f- is it just fuel to you where you're like, man, I I can just. I can go nuts with this. I'm sort of curious where you fall on that. that Um, I think, especially based on my past experience, um, it was about the community because Elder Scrolls has a very vocal community and it even did back then. Remember, Zoss was founded in 2007, which was only like a couple of years after Oblivion launched. And this is long before Skyrim. So everybody's perception of what an Elder Scrolls game was, was Oblivion. And that was our North Star for, for a long time. But um, no, we, our mantra was to make the best game we could that was an Elder Scrolls game and online. So that was, the, that was, our, that was our mantra. And, and Todd was, was always there, but only when we needed him. And we knew if we made a game that the community loved, he would love it too. Does, does Todd ever just like slack you ideas, like game ideas, or do you bounce ideas off of him? Uh, not, not on Slack, but uh, we, we do back when we could see each other in person. Yeah. There's yeah. there, there, there have been some fun discussions about, you know, things we could do or, or things with things we might end up doing. But, uh, and, and of course during 76, we had lots of discussions about, you know, kind of my experience based on, you know, would this be a good idea or not? And so forth. So, so yeah, lots of discussion back and forth. So, uh, you're here because, I mean, you're not here for your health. You're not just here for fun. You, we, we've got it. We've got a game to promote here and it is elder scrolls online. And what we're promoting is the fact that it's about to formally launch on the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X and S. I'm curious, uh, Matt, how has the progression of technology changed how you and the team think about Elder Scrolls Online? Because, you know, as you said, in the course of the seven years that this thing's been around, technology has changed quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's so at least... I start with like a, a core vision of what the world is, you know, and you imagine the the vision, you know, starts as words on a page and you can think of it as like a, you know, a description, you have concept art, you see what it looks like, but you're, when you're playing on a device, you're looking through a window kind of at the world and you're, you're kind of moving the window around. So technology doesn't change that. Like that's, it changes the way it looks you know, it can change some parts of it, but the core cohesive whole of the world doesn't change based on technology. Like Tamriel in ESO is Tamriel in ESO. It doesn't matter if you're looking at it on a, on a 
Xbox on a, on a PlayStation four, you know, or on the best gaming PC that you can buy. It's still the world of Tamriel. Now it looks better and more realistic on one than the other, but it still looks pretty fantastic on the, uh, on, on the 2014 era consoles. So that concept is important to us that we don't create just for the high end machines because community games like this can draw in people that don't have high end gaming PCs and don't have consoles and have laptops and um, like college kids in dorm rooms. So it was important to us that ESO ran on a super forgiving range of hardware. Um, And that decision that we made early on really, really helped us bridge the gap to console because ESO wasn't going to come out on console when we first, um, when we first, you know, greenlit the project. Um, but that idea made the, the engine scalable. And then because we did that and we kept it making it scalable over the years for the newer PC tech, then when the new generation, the current gen came out, um, last year, we were very well primed to, uh, to port a lot of those changes back into the console version. So it's more, uh, a philosophy of we use the hardware you have, but we're not going to assume that you have it. You know, you talked about uh, one of the sort of unintentional failings of of Camelot and Mythic was that you know you you had that uh, creative spirit of of figuring out as you went along, but that didn't scale very well. What were some of the lessons that that you took from your time on Camelot and at Mythic and applied as you as you built? Uh, Zenimax Online Studios and ESO from the ground up. Yeah, uh, one was dis- determining very early that this game was way too big for me to be the studio head and the lead designer and the creative director, um, which sounds crazy. But at Mythic, you know, I had some of those, and I was producer there too. So it was, uh, you know, when we launched Camelot, we were thirty-two people. It was like <laughs> it was really, really small, um, a lot bigger than that on ESO. So I think the right thing to do is find that we did well was find the right people to put in the right leadership positions, especially creative. So in the formative years of ESO up, you know, from before launch from from beta on through console was Paul Sage was the creative director and now Rich Lambert. And so those two really helped kind of guide the vision for the whole game, not just for the design, but for the look and feel for the, the UI and were the, were a way that I could, you know, talk to them about things and they could get it to the team where I then had to go worry about the, all the rest of the MMO stuff. So let me go back to the, 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 the idea of how the game has evolved over the last seven years here. What have you, ch- have you noticed any changes in player habits? I mean, have, have those changed since 2014? Cause obviously like, streaming culture and watching people play games. That's something that wasn't really a big thing back then. We've got, uh, with like the backbone, there's, you know, there's X cloud now. Uh, and and that's so have, what have, how has that, you know, those things impacted player habits and such impacted the way you, you and the team approach ESO and think about it. Well, it was funny as old PC developers, as I was, and, uh, cause ESO is literally the first console game I ever shipped. Um, uh, I will say that we did go in with some preconceived notions that, you know, the old PC gamers are hardcore and console gamers are more casual. And I will tell you, there are people that play the game super hardcore on console, right? There is There are hardcore players and there are casual players, and it doesn't matter what platform they are because uh, that goes across. So that was a, a, a preconceived notion that was definitely uh, definitely shot down. I think 
the biggest change that we made that we realized, um, and we actually facilitated this change was we had a problem in the launch version of the game when we were on PC, um, which we fixed, but well, it was on console for a while, but one of the big issues was when the SO launched on, on PC, it was a traditional level-based game where I'm level one, I go to the level one area, you know, I kill the rats, I go to the level five area, the 15 area. And when I'm level 50, I go back to the level one area and there's nothing there for me to do because it's so easy and I get no experience for it. So that was tried and true. Um, And this is a way that we, this is why we don't really consider ESO to be an MMORPG anymore because it, it doesn't have some of those things. What the problem that led to is that over time, more and more players came into the game, especially friends of people who were playing it. And those friends were already level 35 and their new friend shows up and he's level one and they can't play together. And that's crazy when you think about it. Like that's such a hostile player, hostile design decision. Um, and so, you know, what, what I always say there is like, just, you know, when, when I said, when I told the team we have to fix that, there was some pushback because that's a very traditional paradigm that all games in this genre of use, we still get flack for it from time to time. Um, but my comeback to them was we're about to go on console. Like when you play Grand Theft Auto, right? Do, do you care what level you are in GTA? Do you really, you just jump in and play and have fun. The game takes care of all that stuff behind the scenes. Um, and so that's, that's what we did. We, took levels out of the world and made the player scale to, to the content. So um, that change came in 2016 and we called, we called it one Tamriel, but that changed, changed the game because literally guilds were who wanted to recruit lower level members. They couldn't play with their new recruits, but with after one Tamriel, they could all play together. They could all go to the same areas and have dungeon runs together, or or go, uh, you know, go um, and have an event in game where they weren't separated because they were different levels. Husbands could get their wives into into the game for the first time and play with them, and it, it just made it a social game where before it was social hostile, and now and after that it was very 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 social and. The community in ESO is a little different from other traditional MMOs because of that, because new players are actually fun to hang out with and you can play with them, you can adventure with them and they can participate just like, so there's none of the, I'm level 50 and you can't do anything because you're, you're a newbie, right? And so it's, it's just a different feeling game because of that. For gamers now who are in a tough time where it's, uh, you know, relatively speaking, in the Elder Scrolls universe, there's this extremely long wait that we're all in the middle of, but from Skyrim to Elder Scrolls Six. So how do you convince those people to try ESO and try and, and play it? So, I mean, I understand um, that the single-player Elder Scrolls games are game of the year, if not the century games, like they are amazingly good games. Um, and so I, I personally am waiting for, uh, <laughs> Elder Scrolls six, cause I would love to play it too. Um, but ESO does have that Elder Scrolls feel. You can play it solo. In fact, most people do play it solo, um, and group up just for co-op dungeons and things like that. But, uh, um, it is a very solo friendly game and you can go to parts of Tamriel that you have never been to in any of the single player games. Um, also we're really, really, um, 
concentrate on making sure the lore is consistent across all of the games from arena on, on through to ESO. So the lore is consistent. We're set about 700 years before the other elder scrolls games. Um, so you get to see a his- historical view of Tamriel that you really wouldn't get to see in the other games. Um, and it, it's, it's just fun to experience that with other people. I'm curious, what has being on Xbox game pass meant for ESO. Can you sort of speak to that from, you know, we, we, as gamers, we think, oh, great. Another big game on game pass. That's great. But from the developer side, and especially one where, you know, you're managing a large online community, what has that single decision done for, for the game? Well, it gets more people into the game that maybe otherwise wouldn't. And so uh, it's been a great, great boon to us. And we're, I mean, every game is a perfect Game Pass game because of just the way it's set up. But ESO is an extra special Game Pass game because it's it has tons of engagement. Like you can drop it for two weeks and come back and pick up right where you were. You can, you know, uh, not play for a month and get a text from a friend that said, hey, come in and run this dungeon with me and just jump back in. Like it's a it's that kind of experience. And Game Pass as a service leads you to have that kind of experience with every game. So ESO just kind of fits perfectly in to, to that, to, to the whole concept, like jump in and play, go up, go play another game if you want, but come back and it'll still be there. So for, for this next gen official release here on PS5, Series X, Series S, what, uh, what are you guys taking advantage of? What are you guys doing with the new hardware? You mentioned, you talked about scalability before, so I'm kind of curious how are, uh, you know, how is ESO leveraging the new stuff? Yeah. I mean, it isn't, uh, I'm not stretching it too much to say it is the best looking version of ESO I've ever seen. And I have a really good PC at home. Um, the consoles have some additional shaders that you can take advantage of. And since it's purpose built for that hardware, you can do some some things that you just can't do on PC. Um, so it looks fantastic. Um, but for the first time, you can run at 60 frames a second on ESO console. So we have a performance and fidelity mode for each of the three next gen consoles. And the performance, I mean, fidelity is everything turned on looks amazing at 30 frames a second. And then we can dial back the fidelity a little bit um, at the expense of frame rate and get and get to 60. So players can make that choice. You know, do they want the feel of 60 frames or do they want the amazing, un- unbelievable, you know, vistas of, uh, of 4K at 30? That seems like a pretty compelling reason alone. If you're if you're an e- a regular ESO player, that's a that's a nice reason yeah. to to get that new machine. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's the new machines are really good. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure you've heard it from from every developer. They're really good. Like they're they're very performant, and they have for at least for us for the kind of game ESO is they have the right mix of you know um, just sheer horsepower and fidelity for us to make a really, really good looking world. I imagine the uh, SSD drives in each of these machines are, are helpful yeah. when you're loading new zones and things as well. Yeah, it's, yeah I should have I said that. Thank you. <laughs> but yes, uh, in most cases, it's at least halved the loading times uh, of, of the previous gen. And it's not just the SSD. There's also some, some caching and stuff they do to make it even faster than just the hardware. So yeah, it's uh, it's just much snappier and uh, and and a great experience. Uh, just, I've got a few more questions for you uh, for you before I let you go, but I, I want to change gears a tad here. Curious, did did you know Robert Altman at all? Because he seems to be from from what I've read and uh, about him since his passing, 
just seems to universally be regarded as a good guy, which you don't always hear about like, you know, multimillionaire CEOs in that, in that vein. So do you, do you have any good Robert stories? I mean, he was a mentor, a friend. He was, he's an, was an amazing human being. Like he, yes, I know, I knew him pretty well. I'm sure many knew him better than I did, but yes, he, he was the rare person who commanded authority and respect without asking for it. And uh, like he, it's, it's hard to explain if you didn't work with him, but you know, his instincts were right. Almost always. He, uh, he, he was just a good dude. Like he was, he was, he was great. He was great for us. He was, he was great for the industry. Um, I think my favorite story of, of, of his is that it's no secret that ESO wasn't super well regarded at launch. Like it had some, had some, let's just say mixed reviews, uh, had some nineties, had some not nineties, uh, and uh, the numbers, you know, it didn't sell as well as they thought it. It was okay. it was doing okay, but it wasn't nearly what the projections were. And and he, and basically, Robert told everyone just to lay off and we and give us space, like give us space and let us concentrating on fixing it. And then he told me personally, it was like uh, literally the quote was. You know, this is a one-on-one conversation. It was like, it didn't go the way you wanted. We understand. But you understand why it didn't go the way you wanted, so fix it. <laughs> and, and that's, the, yeah, how long have you been covering the game industry and have heard a story like that? It's like, it doesn't go that way 999 times out of a 1,000, right? At the stakes we were playing at with the amount of money we had invested in the game, uh, you know, the, the intent, the strategy, the rule book says, cut, cut your money and, and run while you can cut your losses. And, but he was, he trusted us to do it. And he knew that there was a good game there. He saw the numbers. He saw the, that there was a small group of people, but, but super hardcore that played the game every day. And we showed that to him and we're like, he's like, what's your strategy? And we're like, we're going to look at what the, that group of people does. And we're going to do more of that <laughs> and less of the other stuff. And we, that's what we did. And uh, we climbed out of the hole. And now seven years later, ESO had its biggest year ever last year, six years after launch. Well, yeah, you talk about how often do you hear stories like that? Yeah. You happen to use the word, I didn't want to cut you off, but you happen to use the word uh, that he told you that he said, that he said, uh, tell everybody to, to lay off Zoss. And it's like, yeah. is it most, most of the time in the industry, you get the other version of yeah. layoff oh, yeah. after, after, you know, a disappointing start, you, you got the good kind of just leave alone, not, yeah. you know, unemploy. So yeah, it was a very, very difficult time as we were trying to wade through the noise of reviews and technical problems, you know, launching an MMO, it's got the whole IT side of it. You know, there's the, the problems to be solved. And there was so much noise going on that we really needed some clear air to just concentrate on the game. And he, he gave us that. It was like, it's up to you. We want to hear a plan, you know, come back to me as soon as you can with the plan and we'll go from there. You know, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, the longevity of ESO, you know, technology does progress. You've, you've tried to build in scalability. You've got these two new consoles that you're fully supporting now, but it, do you see a point where Elder Scrolls Online really can't be updated anymore and that you would have to kind of tear down the entire house and, rebuild it from scratch and start over or, and kind of on a similar note, like would a sequel ever work? Would there be ever be an elder scrolls online too? Because 
I mean, we haven't really seen that, or it hasn't really worked in the online in the MMO space ever. So I'm just sort of curious your your thoughts on that. So we're obviously doing our job right, if you haven't noticed, but we, we're tearing down the engine one room at a time all the time. <laughs> so the engine right now is much different than it was when we launched. Um, it could never have scaled to what we do now. So we're constantly behind the scenes making it better. Um, and it introduces some problems when we do that sometimes, like memory management and uh, you know multi-threading and those kind of things. But we have to do it to keep up. Like the game right now wouldn't run on the base Xbox or the the last generation base uh, consoles. Like it wouldn't run unless we had done a lot of engine optimization and changes because the game it's just too big at this point. So uh, it doesn't fit on those devices. It's it's so big just in memory. So. Uh, at one point, we had to stop adding new animations to the game for six months because it, we would just run out of memory on 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 those devices if we had. But they're a core part of our community, so we're going to support them. And so we did, and we re-architected memory and stream in a lot more stuff. And uh, we introduced some bugs when we did that, which were very un unfortunate, but we fixed them. Um, but that's why we're doing that, is to keep the game relevant and looking fantastic and doing things like the next-gen version, which is coming out in June. Well, how about let me let me follow up just on that sequel point. Like, did you know it? I don't think it really has. Maybe you can name a better example. I, you know, there have been a couple of attempts, but there haven't really been. I mean, EverQuest two never really got off the ground. EverQuest next and uh, well, it launched two weeks before WoW, so I think that was it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, I think it's, that had uh, more to do with it than anything. I mean, it, can sequels ever work in an, in the online space? Would you even want to go there? Well, it's like. When is Netflix two going to uh, going to launch? Right, it's Great like we're a, we're a service, and we're yeah. a service that people log into every day and play. And uh, like, as long as they're doing that, there's no reason to do a, a version two. Um, in fact, in many ways, uh, Orsinium, which is the DLC we did back in 2015, that really was version two, and then Morrowind was version three, and then uh, so every year we're just doing. Uh, a new chapter update, but those chapters aren't just new content. There's also a lot of tech behind the scenes, which keeps it running and makes it relevant. Transition for Microsoft been for you and your team? Because uh, I mean, I know the game's going to obviously continue to be supported on all platforms, as evidenced with this PlayStation Five uh, optimized release. But yeah. you know, just for for you personally and your team, how have you found it now being Microsoft employees? Well, it's. It's been, uh, I mean, it's 100% positive. There just haven't been any changes for us because we're not, we're, we're just not in a position where it would affect us. We have a long running game that's already integrated with all of Microsoft. Um, and so we're, we're, we have meetings with, uh, you know, the Xbox team every once in a while. We just had a meet and greet, like I said, with other Xbox studio heads, just the most, many of which I already knew and some I had worked with because we've been around for so long. But, uh, um, it's it's great to be in an organization where um, the development side and the games are held in such high regard. Like the creative process is very respected at, at, at Xbox. Um, the it's very much game development first. Like uh, it's a very good environment for people to make games. They're not afraid to take to take chances. Um, game look at Game Pass. I mean that's it's changing the industry as we talk. Um, it gives games that might not have been greenlit in other situations a chance to really shine. Um, the example we, we always use internally is that uh, Prey, the 2016 version of Prey that Arcane did, 
is an amazingly good game. And it didn't really sell. I mean, it sold well, but not but not as well as it could have, considering how good it is. But Game Pass, and now it's on Game Pass, and it's doing very well because it's a great game. And just that idea of having a subscription service that gives you access to games is is uh, it just it changes the way you think about the industry and launching games, and uh, and uh, that was a chance they took, and that 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 philosophy permeates throughout the entire organization. You, know, you mentioned this meet and greet with all the Xbox studio heads. Now that you're you're part of the family, um, what's any? Did you talk to anybody and have an interesting conversation about their game, or, or that you're that you're able to talk about? I'm sort of curious if there were any neat little stories or anecdotes. Or yeah, I mean, the, the the only one is uh, I mean, we all had just a few minutes to introduce ourselves, basically. But uh, but I reminded uh, uh, Brian Fargo of In Exile and uh, Fergus Urquhart from. Uh, from Obsidian that I worked with them in 1995. Uh, they had a small online game company publishing company as part of black Isle called, uh, or part of interplay, sorry, called, um, engage games online that I made a bunch of games for, and it helped mythic get off the ground and gave us the money to build dark age Camelot was those games. So I wouldn't be here without them. So they hadn't thought about that in a long time. And they, they, they laughed a long time about that. Oh, that's really great. Um, all right. Well, just put on your your just hypothetical scenario fun hat for a second before I let you go. So Microsoft owns a lot of properties. Give me a dream MMO. I know you said you don't want to work with, <laughs> well, we don't want to work with an external IP, an external license. So within the Microsoft sphere, give me a dream MMO that you'd like to make using using a Microsoft property, whether it's Halo, Gears, Shadowrun, Crimson Skies, etc. Is there is yeah. there anything any IP in the in the Microsoft family that you'd uh, you'd love to have a go at? I, I perhaps should know, but I didn't know that Shadowrun was in the family. Who who owns that? I, or you know what? Maybe I, I of course my fact checking team is me. I can, yeah, okay, that might say if that was the case. If that was the case, that would win. Okay, that would be the one. Yeah, I don't know if they have it or if Jordan Wiseman has it back. Uh, yeah. All right, but we'll accept that answer. That's a good <laughs> that runs a good answer. It's also very politically safe because I'm not gunning for anyone's IP right now. <laughs> I, I, got, I got my hands full, totally. Uh, fair enough. So, uh, okay, well, there, on that sort of topic, though, you have expressed a clear love for Fallout. Is there a point where you're going to get an itch to – ramp up the studio and, and hire some more talented folks. And is there a fallout online at some point in, in your future? I don't know. I actually love 76. So, um, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't help develop it. I, you know, they bounced some ideas off me, but as a rabid fallout fan and as someone who grew up in West Virginia, which I did, uh, um, in fact, you can run between Seneca rocks and spruce, uh, uh, Seneca rocks and sugar grove. And that my house is halfway in between them where I grew up. Um, like I love that game. And so, no, I think that game has legs for, for a long, long time more. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that for now. And again, my hands are really full. I got lots of stuff going on. So, uh, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not looking to, uh, to go after fallout right now, but I do, uh, I do play 76, a fair amount. You did say though, before I'll, I'll let you go. Two years ago, you told official Xbox magazine, quote, we're accepting applications for people to work on a new engine for a new AAA game. So, yeah. yes, we have ideas, but we're committed to ESO for as long as it takes. So uh, is there are you guys still incubating stuff or, or these days is it just all ESO all the time? Yeah, 
We've said publicly we are working on a second project. It's un- unannounced and we're still hiring for it. And it is a uh, next-gen new IP project. So that's all I can say right now. It's been it's been backburnered for a long time because ESO has been so successful. It kind of sucks the air out of the room. But, uh, but we're very excited about it. And we have a lot of positions open. So uh, please, if you are listening and you want to work for us, please go check it out. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Matt Firer, the head guru, the man uh, behind the head of a, of a large, very talented team at ZeniMax Online Studios working on the Elder Scrolls Online. Be sure to check out Elder Scrolls Online on Xbox Game Pass if you're a subscriber there. But it is now, as uh, we've been talking about, officially available, taking full advantage of both the PlayStation 5 and the pair of Xbox Series consoles. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to stop by. It's been my pleasure. All right, for more from the best, brightest, and most interesting minds in the games industry, check back every month for a new episode of IGN Unfiltered. Hey folks, I'm Yen. And I'm Nat. And we're the hosts of Comic Sans, the podcast about comics for those who are sans knowledge. Comic Sans is a show for people who know nothing about comics, like me. And people who love them, like me, and want to learn more about them. What makes you an authority on comic books? I read them, write them, live them, breathe them. What makes you the authority on knowing nothing? Honestly, Yen, two seasons in, I actually know a little more than I used to. You're welcome. The reason for that is that every episode, I make Nat read one of my favorite comics, like Daredevil Saga or This One Summer. And then he tells me what makes that comic so special. And then I hear what Nat thinks, and I try to avoid a pulmonary embolism. While I actively try to give him one. You can listen to the second season of Comic Sans now. With new episodes every two weeks. Wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Yen, I think I know so much about comics now that this might have to be our last season. Nat, there will forever be more comic than you will ever know. What does that even mean? I don't know. It sounds profound, though. Right?